Turn in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. We'll read that chapter, Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it, and they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit, in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near unto one of them that stood by, and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me, and made me know the interpretation of the things. Now what follows really is our text, the interpretation of the things. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, 
whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, broke in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet, and of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes in the mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down, and break it in pieces, and the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings, and he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times, and the dividing of time. But the judgment shall set, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. We read that far in God's holy word. Beloved in our Lord, Jesus Christ, the very powerful and dreadful information that's found in this chapter is troubling. And it is exactly because it is troubling that we need to be reminded that a chapter such as this is the Holy Gospel, and it is given for our encouragement and our strengthening. This is what it was for Daniel, to be sure. He was disturbed. He received this vision, and we read that it troubled him greatly. It troubled him greatly at the very beginning, verse 15 we read, and yet even at the end, after he had read it all, such was the information that his spirit, he said, changed in him. He was troubled within. At the same time, we read he kept the matter in his heart. He considered it. He thought about it. He continued to meditate upon it. And what he considered was all the information, and then understood too that it was given for a purpose. It wasn't given to Daniel so that he might share it with the kings, as he had shared the interpretation of kings' dreams, but it was given to him personally. And God had given that personally to him, not to trouble him, but rather to comfort him. In fact, one can understand that personally for Daniel if one considers that according to the opening verse, chronologically, <clears throat> this dream occurs before chapters 5 and 6. In chapter 5, we read that Daniel was called in to deliver a very 
condemning message of God's judgment to the powerful king of Babylon. A message of his defeat, which would occur yet that night. And then we haven't considered yet chapter 6, which is the story, well-known story, of Daniel in the lion's den, which occurs during the reign of the Persians. This occurs in the first year of Belteshazzar, that king, whose demise he saw written on the wall. What that indicates to us is God gave even this very dream, knowing that Daniel would soon have to face this great king and face another great king. Both kings, in fact, represented in this dream. And this is also what this passage was to the people of God, especially in the Old Testament. But imagine how they reacted when these words by God's providence and by His great Spirit were preserved and they read them. There would be no prophet from God that they would hear from until John the Baptist some 400 years later. There would be silence, as it were, from God. Oh, they would return from Babylon, but they would be living in a city that was a shell of its former glory. For 400 years, there would be no king of David reigning on the throne. Troubling, troubling things to endure as a child of God. And yet they would have turned to a passage like this for great comfort. And that's what it must be for us also. We must focus upon the purpose and the intention of the message, which is at its heart, Christ. Christ runs through the heart and center of this message. The proof of that is that Christ himself will quote from this prophecy of Daniel. When in Mark chapter 14, verse 62, he is in his own judgment by these own kings, these kings found in this vision, that he himself gave to Daniel. Keep that in mind. And they tried to convict him of blasphemy, of speaking words against God. And convict him they did, because he said he was the Christ. Jesus indicated he was the Christ by simply quoting from this passage. And all knew what he meant. May that be our experience here tonight as we consider the truth of the fourth beast. We consider his identity, then his war, and then finally his destruction. First of all, his identity. And here, what stands on the foreground, of course, is that which made Daniel fear and quake. And as this dream is being worked out, made the children of Israel fear and quake, and which would lead us to fear and quake. We need to do justice to that. Otherwise, there's no need for the Holy Gospel. There's no need to have its comfort. What is it that we with Daniel should sense is wrong, terribly wrong, a threat? And that's that beast, and especially now the fourth beast, Surely all three beasts were terrible. Beasts that are predatory, that is, beasts that consume men. Beasts before whom men would flee and run and try to protect themselves. But it's the fourth beast that grabs Daniel's attention, and rightly so. It's clear that his dreadful nature receives the emphasis. It's twice brought up. Verse 7, And I behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible. So there's a bear and a leopard and another beast, and yet this beast is described as dreadful and terrible. goes on in verse 19 to say the same thing. A fourth beast, diverse diverse from the others, different. How so? 
exceedingly dreadful. And then you read the description, and he's unlike any of these other beasts. He has features that you don't find on a beast that are terrible. The others have wings and such, and they have teeth and claws as such. But this one has teeth of iron. He has nails of brass. Keep in mind, iron and brass are man-made metals that you wouldn't find on a beast. And it devoured broken pieces and stamped the residue with his feet. So put it all together. First of all, he's a beast. A beast indeed like the other beasts. That is, he's a predator. He's an animal that exists on this earth that is extremely powerful and cunning. And it eats flesh. And it eats men's flesh. All these beasts, the idea is, are beasts that even men, who are supposedly the king of the creation, fears. First is described as being a lion with eagle's wings. The second, a bear with three ribs in its jaw, indicating its predatory nature. And the third is a leopard, but he has four heads and four wings. But the other is diverse. The idea is that whatever the three beasts are, he also is a beast, but he is more powerful, he is more terrifying, and much more dangerous predator than the other three beasts. That's the idea. That's the idea of the fact that he unlike the others, has ten horns on his head. Horns that are going to be interpreted as kings. Horns that represent power. These other beasts have power, but this one has ten horns. Has all the power, the fullness of power. Its teeth aren't simply normal teeth, but are made of the strongest of the metals of those days are of iron. That is, nothing can resist. This beast can consume anything that it gets its claws on. And then we read, it has feet, and with those feet it breaks in pieces. It stamps. It crushes. That's unlike any kind of beast that we really know. A beast that deliberately takes its prey, puts it under its feet, and then crushes it. Takes even the leftovers. That's the idea of residue. It first chomps. It per first eats. It consumes. And then there's stuff left over. The inedible things. And it still stamps them until they're nothing but powder and dust. The idea is this is a picture of his complete and absolute power over all of his enemies by subjecting them to a bruising, crushing uh, power. It's futile to resist. That's the idea. His power and his terribleness and that which separates him from the other three is also indicated by the fact that he devours the other three. He takes their dominion and he takes their power. The idea of the dream and the interpretation is that he doesn't simply defeat them, but he takes, he absorbs unto himself everything that the others were. They are also among those that he devours and breaks in pieces. That's evident in the fact that they're pictured by these three horns on his head, which are plucked up by the roots. He takes their dominion away. That's why they go away. And yet, that's also the idea that Daniel takes note of near the end. Verse 12, as concerning the rests of the beast. Now he 
makes note of this after the fourth beast is judged and destroyed. He goes back and he reflects on those other three beasts. And he says about them that they had their dominion taken away. Taken away by whom? And the idea is by this fourth beast. And yet, he says, their lives were prolonged for a season and time. And you say, prolonged how? And the answer is prolonged in the life of this beast. And that's also in keeping with a predator, isn't it? There are predators that simply slay because they're predators, but most predators slay in order to eat. And they eat in order that they might absorb the life and the power of that which they eat, and it becomes them. That's the idea here too with these three beasts in comparison to the fourth. But then there is, oh, and interestingly too, and we ought to keep this in mind, one of the wonders that we have in our day is that God revisits this vision, and He does that for the New Testament saints. And we can go to the book of Revelation, which corresponds very much with the book of Daniel, and lo and behold, you'll find this beast again. Revelation 13. Only there's one beast. Well, there's two beasts, but there's one beast. And when you look at him, he's described as all four beasts. You could take a look at that yourself. You'll notice that that beast, which is the same one as the fourth beast, is described in terms of the other three. He's a leopard, he's a lion, and he has feet like a bear. There's one other particular feature that captures Daniel's attention, rightly so, and that's a little horn. A little horn. It's little, but it too is diverse from all the other horns. There's something about this horn that makes you wonder, what is it? Though it be little, it's the only horn that has human eyes, and it has a human mouth, and a human mouth speaking great things. Great things that men sit up and take notice, that they listen to. And we're told, in spite of the fact that it's little, it's more stout than all the others. And that's evident by the fact that it plucks up three horns in order to grow. Maybe little, maybe short, but it's a horn that cannot be plucked up. A horn that cannot be ripped off the head of this beast. Now, that's what the prophet sees. And it's dreadful. But the spiritual reality of this beast is, we may say, even more dreadful. Now what we should see also is like all Old Testament prophecies, or at least most of them, the vast majority of them, there is in Old Testament partial fulfillment. When the prophets spoke about things, they often spoke about things that would be fulfilled shortly. That is, yet in the Old Testament period. Maybe in weeks, maybe in years, maybe in hundreds of years. They couldn't really tell the distant aspect. And they often had a New Testament fulfillment, a final fulfillment, a perfect fulfillment. And that, of course, in the kingdom of Christ. And that's what we have here too. We may see that there is with this fourth beast and the truth of them a partial Old Testament fulfillment. Well, what is that? And the answer is that this fourth beast represents none other than the kingdom of Rome, which defeats the previous three world power kingdoms of Babylon and Persia and then the Medo or the Macedonian Greece empire. In other words, if we can go back to the dreams that Daniel had, he represents the fourth of the metals in the great image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of, that had a head of gold, which was Babylon, 
It had a neck and shoulders of silver. It had a stomach and thighs of brass and then legs of iron. And that's this fourth beast. This follows, this even confirms what we said earlier that in these dreams of beasts or images where we're told they're kings and or their kingdoms. We read of that explicitly here in verse 17. We read, these great beasts, which are four, are four kings. There again, see, just like in the image, Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, you, you are that head of gold. It's a king. But then also their kingdom. It represents their influence. The influence that they have due to their power and their dominion. That this is the case is evident from their description. Again, sometimes these beasts or these statutes or these things are identified. Sometimes they're not. But they're always given in such a way that it's clear what they are. Take the first beast. That one's the clearest. He's a lion. He's a lion. The king of the beasts. Immediately you think of that head. That head of gold that was positively identified as Nebuchadnezzar. That's at the top. He's, he's the head of this great, great image. Well, here he's represented as a lion. The king of the beasts. But a lion that had his wings plucked. He had wings. But his, he had power. Power like the angels. Power like the spirits. But they're plucked. He falls to the ground. Then we read he's lifted up and he's made to stand on his feet as a man and he's given a man's heart. And you immediately think back to that dream and what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that? He lifted himself up with pride even though God had come and given him a dream and warned him through the prophet. He walked around saying, look at this great Babylon that I have made. And immediately he went mad. was deposed even though he was a great king, he was deposed, turned into a beast, lived out with a cattle, was fed grass like a cow, only to be restored after seven seasons and put back on his throne. That's the lion there. You can look at the others too, though, and see them. And see them. You look at for example, the beast that had the three ribs. You see how that kingdom was split up into itself three great kings. No longer one king, but three great kings. Those three ribs speak on behalf of that kingdom. We even call it the Medo-Persian kingdom because it was divided. It wasn't a united kingdom like Babylon. But then along comes the fourth, and it too has a sort of weird division. Four heads and four wings. And we're going to see that's a feature of the third beast, the third animal, the third thing that happens in these dreams. And that's because it represents Greece, the kingdom of Macedonia and Greece, which is swiftly going to conquer the world. But when Alexander dies without heirs, is divided four ways. Even secular history knows that. The kingdom becomes divided and will remain divided between four men, generals, and their progeny until the Romans conquer them, this fourth beast. Again, there's unity in the beasts. They're, they're all beasts. They're all exceedingly fearful. They're there's features, and there are four kings. And again, we see confirmed what we saw earlier, that they represent something together. And we know that to be the kingdom of man. They represent man's accomplishments, man's development of power and sin, especially in one person. And that as man successively goes along. There's a certain strength. A strength that is gained. And the point is it comes to its fruition and fulfillment in the Old Testament in the Kingdom of Rome. And, and think, about, think about who's in power when Christ comes. 
Christ is going to be standing before the representatives of this fourth beast. And don't forget, it's on his mind. When the Lord quotes from this very passage, and <laughs> this isn't the only passage he's going to quote in Daniel. He's going to quote from this passage at his trial. And you know what he's thinking. He's thinking what I'm telling you. These are just beasts. Oh yes, look at them. They have the power to rend me to pieces, to tear me to shreds, to chomp me, especially that fourth beast. That fourth beast is going to devour me with those iron teeth on a cross. It's real. It was really in the heart and mind. But that was really only a partial fulfillment. We, we know that the kingdom of Rome has, as it were, sort of ended, but yet it hasn't. Just like in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the, the legs go to the feet and they have the same components as the legs. There's iron there, but it's mixed with clay. And it, and it holds up the whole statue. Here again, the idea is there's no real need to even speak of a fifth beast or a fifth component. You can almost like the legs of Nebuchadnezzar, see the legs and the feet as one. You can hardly separate them. And that's the idea here. So there's a final New Testament fulfillment. The idea is that it's a kingdom that continues to exist and to grow in strength and dominion in the world, even though we might say the kingdom of Rome is over. No, it's not. Not really. This beast continues to exist. He's still there. He's not devoured until the very end when the Ancient of Days comes. That, that's evident. Again, go to the book of Revelation. And the beast shows back up there. That's God's way of telling us you're going to have to reckon with this beast. The entire New Testament period, the church, is going to have to be dealing with this beast. Beside that, notice the beast comes from the earth. There is the fact that the beast comes from the sea. That's brought out in the passage. These beasts come from the seas. And by the way, the seas are still there. And if you know anything about Scripture, you know the seas represent mankind. But we also read in verse 17, he comes from the earth. These beasts do. They come out of the sea and they come out of the earth. They're part of the earth. They're as it were part of the fabric of the earth. When the same beast is described, by the way, in Revelation 17, he's identified, this is interesting, the beast himself is identified as peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. When you think of texts like Isaiah 57, verse 20, the wicked are like the troubled sea. And you can put it all together and realize this is not just representative of a king, but the king of peoples, he represents the peoples and nations of the earth throughout the whole New Testament period. And there's a certain gaining of power. As time goes on, there's more and more power, more and more dominion, more and more influence, more and more development of everything that man can and will do. In fact, we're going to see that part of the rise to power is in response to the judgments of God on the sinfulness of this beast. This beast comes to power and gains the nations of the earth because the beast represents the salvation of mankind, represents the salvation of man, man saving himself from God, from God's judgment and saving himself in such a way that he may maintain his wickedness. Always understand that. That's the feature of a false gospel and a false truth. It is the anti-Christian gospel that one can be saved and stay wicked. Maintain his sin and his sinfulness. That's what man wants. And it doesn't matter if it's preached in a liberal church or a conservative church or it's preached out in the world by a philosopher. That is what man wants. Man wants salvation from the judgments of God. 
the judgments of God that come against his idolatry, as we saw this morning. And they come as man develops in sin. God's judgments come with increasing force, increasing power, increasing anger. Man develops in his words, in his promises, in his hope in himself. That he can save himself from this God and keep his sin, keep his sinfulness. What we must see is that this, of course, develops until it literally consists of one single worldwide kingdom over all peoples and nations' tongues by one man. And the idea is that's the little horn of the beast. That yes, this is a beast that represents ten kings, many kingdoms. In fact, the fullness of kingdoms in the New Testament era, as it were, may even see him as representing all the kings and kingdoms that have ever lived. Ruled by one man. Ask yourself, how far away are we from that? Do you see what man desires, what man wants, what man's goals are? Do you see it? Man wants to be united. Man wants to come together. Oh yeah, there's holdouts. There's people that don't want this, that want their sovereignty. But man is working to overcome that. He won't be able to overcome that until one man comes along and forces the issue. Stamps everybody out. Brooks no opposition. And says, this is what we're going to do. Just like Nebuchadnezzar's decree, only with worldwide force. Can't happen. It's going to happen. This, of course, is the Antichrist that's being spoken about. And now we may turn to his war. The war that is conducted, we are told, is a war against the Most High. And that, we may say, is the most dreadful and terrible aspect of this. What's dreadful and terrible when you look at these beasts, and especially that force beast, is not that he uses his teeth and his claws and his feet to stamp out opposition in the world, that he uses them to devour mighty kingdoms like Babylon and Greece, wicked and ungodly men, but what's terrifying, what's dreadful, is he uses those weapons on the church. And we read that that's because he's waging a war against the Most High. Let's take a look, first of all, at the form of that hatred against God, against the church. we told he stamps the residue with his feet. Now, it's an interesting word. That word residue is simply the word for remnant, the leftovers, the remnant. And that's obviously referring to that which exists against all his enemies. But don't forget also, that's a word that's often used for the church. It's a word that refers to the church. The word that's used for the church is God's elect, as the God, church that God preserves in the world throughout time and history. And though with regard to the church visible, many may go apostate, as what happens in Judah and Israel, or in the New Testament, as is going on in our own day. How many in the church truly love God and believe His Word? A remnant, the Bible would say. Well, he turns on that remnant we read. We're also told specifically that that little horn will make war with the saints and prevail against them. Verse 21, and I beheld in the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Verse 25 we read, and he shall wear them out. In other words, and notice this is attributed especially to the little horn. The beast, of course, does this. The beast has been doing that throughout the whole New Testament period. Read history sometime from that perspective. Always lurking in the background of human history. Human history, which, by the way, follows this beast to the most. Western civilization, the development of that beast in Western civilization always lurking in the background, is what that beast does to the church. How it uses mighty kings and nations and peoples and turns them on the church. 
So the church is persecuted. The church is resisting. The church is fighting, but is worn out and prevails. That is, there are members that are devoured and consumed. And in a certain way, ceases to exist. It's another thing that's foretold in the book of Revelation. That such is this war against the church that from any human, visible, earthly aspect, one would say, the beast has prevailed. He has used his teeth and claws. And he has used his feet. He has used also the words on that horn. Those great words to, in effect, wipe out the church. Where is the church? One will be saying. What's happened to the church? And don't forget, some of that will be God's judgment upon the apostate church. If you ask yourself, why is God giving this vision? One of the reasons is as a warning to the apostate in the church. Those in Daniel's time who, even though they had witnessed the church go into captivity for their idolatry, still refused to give up their idolatry. And they didn't know what's going to happen. And it's laid out. There'll be also many that go apostate because they're scared of this. They don't have faith. They look at this and they're simply terrified. They come up with theologies. They come up with thinking. They come up with plans to avoid all this, to try to escape it. There's no escaping it. It's prophesied. The beast. The beast, especially when the little horn arises, that stout horn that speaks for the beast, will prevail and wear out the saints. The point is, this is what the church may expect in all of time and history. At one point or another, to different degrees or another, the church has always faced this fourth beast. But when you really understand his wickedness and you really understand his terribleness when you consider that he takes up war against the Most High himself. Notice that. We're told before he wears out the saints, before that, that with that mouth, with that mouth and the little horn, he speaks great words, and they are great words against the Most High Himself. He shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints. Those great words are identified in the book of Revelation. They are blasphemy. That's why they're great. It's not simply great words because like Nebuchadnezzar, when he spoke his decree, carried weight, and no one dared disobey him. But the idea is great words because they're blasphemous. This is how the church may absolutely identify the Antichrist when he comes. He will be a blasphemer. His words will be blasphemy. He will be a man that says it's fine to live in this or that sin. You must tolerate this or that sin. This is the law of the land. This is what will be promoted even. But especially, he will claim to be God. He will claim to be worthy of worship. He will claim to be worthy of the praise of mankind. His great words are this, man is everything and God is nothing. Man has the power over life, not God. Man has the power to extend your life and make your life happy, not God. Man is living. God is dead. Come to me, all ye weary and heavy laden, not with sin, with the miseries of life. Come to me, and I will give you rest. That's the message. Those are the great words. Recognize them, do you not? You've heard them before, do you not? That's man's gospel. That's blasphemy. The great words also consists in a, his wickedness consists in his attempt, we read, to change times and laws. 
change times and laws. Now, you understand, <laughs> when that's noted by the prophet Daniel, he's not simply talking about the fact that a very powerful king can pretty much do what he wants. You see that. You see that in Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to see that in Darius. You're going to see that in these great kings. They make decrees, and you better follow those decrees. They will brook no opposition. They will change times and laws. They will change customs. They will make you do in your land when they conquer you what they want, not what you want. We, we see that. You see that, do you not, even in our day? Let alone see it in the Old Testament with these partial manifestations. How really man wants the same thing, is striving for the same thing, and if he doesn't get that, a king will get it done. And if there's resistance, we'll get it done. But that's not the idea here. The idea here is change God's times and laws. That is, we'll change the time and the times that God has established, that God has decreed. He will change the laws of God. And you say, no, he can't do that. And he says, no, he can't. Not really. Not essentially. No one can change God's word or change God's law. But it's going to be done. There will be a law that marriage is no longer between a man and a woman. But marriage is whatever you want it to be. Two men, two women. Three men and one woman. Wait for it. Man and a beast. It's coming. And that will be the law of the land. It will change times and laws. Gender isn't determined by your biology. And how you were born, it is, in other words, not determined by God, but man determines biology, uh, gender. Man determines what he wants to be. You hear that message? You hear it today? Do you know where it's coming from? It's coming from the little horn. Soon that message will be coming from one who rules over the whole earth. Do you think there will be a place for you or anyone that says, not so. I have a Bible here. And let me read to you what my Bible teaches is the Word of God. You think that's going to be tolerated? Today I can criticize that and I can go home. Soon that will not be tolerated. How many in the church are going to go along how many in the church are going to come up with excuses? Well, you know, you know, if we don't do what he says, he could kill us. He could take our right to exist as churches. He could do this or that. How many are going to succumb to that? Don't say it can't happen. How easily it can happen. But his war against the Most High comes out in that he changes God's times, God's laws. He'll change God's laws of what constitutes murder, what constitutes marriage, what constitutes fornication. And notice also they are given into his hand for a time. So much so that in Revelation 13, the second beast is described as doing signs and wonders. Signs and wonders as a false prophet. The idea is that when he comes to power, that by changing what seems to be unchangeable laws of God, by changing that which seems to have existed from the beginning of time, because it has, people will flock. People will follow. And indeed, he may be given power because he speaks for Satan, such power as Satan displayed when in one day he took everything away from Job. Satan has that power. Imagine if he gives that power to one man. What changing of times and laws and what signs and wonders he might do. And understand 
so powerful will be these signs and wonders, so terrible and dreadful his actions and his power, that the Bible says there's only one explanation for you and I not being fooled. And it isn't anything in us. Again, surprising. The only explanation, according to Scripture, is that you will be elect. And it's not possible for them to be fooled. What we need to look at next, however, is his certain and complete destruction. That is an emphasis in the text. In in fact, it's surprising one can even miss it, as apparently Daniel did for a time. It's a great feature of it. In fact, when you first read, you read about the beasts, and all of a sudden it switches to the Ancient of Days and the throne and the judgment. Look at the interpretation that the angel gives. Daniel wants to know. I want to know what's the meaning. What, what, is, what is all this? And there's a brief description of the beast. There's a brief description of the fourth beast. Oh, quite a bit longer. But immediately, almost seemingly immediately, it goes to the Ancient of Days again. And the rest is about the destruction of this beast. Um, we have to understand why this is and see how God is, well, He's even testing us as we go through here. It's, it's kind of amazing. Go back and read it again when you get home and, and see what you missed. And look at all the references to God. Now, notice how easily we focus on the beast, just like Daniel. It's going to be our reaction. It's our natural reaction. Fear, terror. Want to know what's going on. To the point where it's easy to miss God. Notice God's description as the Ancient of Days. That is, the everlasting God. The eternal God. These beasts, they're just creatures. They come out of the sea. They come out of the earth. They're that which God made. The Ancient of Days. He's the everlasting and eternal God. He's ministered ministered to. That is, that those that just wait on Him personally, like a might wait on a king. And we might look at an earthly king, perhaps this little horn, someday, and, and you might see a, a hundred people or so ministering to Him. That is, you know, doing His laundry and, and taking care of His... God is ministered to a thou, by a thousand times a thousand. A thousand times a thousand. That's a million. He has a million attendants. And he rules over, we read, 10,000 times 10. That's 100 million. And notice it's in multiples of 10. In other words, we're talking a kingdom far greater than anything this beast can claim to have. And notice a kingdom that doesn't exist then simply of nations and peoples and even beasts, but heaven itself. That's the idea. We're not just talking about earth there. In fact, we're not talking about earth at all. We're talking about those that minister to Him in heaven that are bound His judgment. There's a a million, a million angels that surround Him that take care of His every need as it were. God doesn't have needs, of course, but God wants things done. And there's a million angels at His disposal. Then there's another hundred million. A hundred million that He rules over in heaven. Never mind all the peoples and nations and tongues and tribes and even three beasts. Notice also he's described as a God of fiery judgment. His throne, we read, is a fiery flame and a fiery stream issues forth from him. That is, he's the pure God. The God who is righteous and holy in all that he does, who's blessed in his life. His is right. He is the has alone the authority to judge, to condemn and to lift up, to set down, to destroy, to make alive. That's God. And we kind of missed all that, didn't we? Easily jumped over it. Notice the beast is judged by God. That's mentioned twice in the passage. Not just once, twice. He's judged, we read in the first place, by the Ancient of Days, 9. That is, he's judged by God Himself. 
the judgment we read is set, and the books are open. Verse 10. And the reason for the judgment we read is the great words which He spoke. Wasn't that a feature of the downfall of Nebuchadnezzar too? The great words that He spoke? Think of all the men that guy slew and destroyed and all the awful things his soldiers did. He's judged based on the great words that he spoke. Look at this Babylon that I have made. That is, he claimed for himself that which belongs to God. That's what this fourth beast is going to do to the nth degree. Well, that's idolatry to its fullest development. One reason I wanted to preach on this passage. You want to know where idolatry goes? It's right here. Right here. And now we know what God thinks of it. My point here is not just the um, destruction, but the certainty of that destruction. If you ask, well, what's the certainty of that destruction? I could point at a couple of things. There's God Himself. But don't forget that God must judge idolatry and the idolatry of men. God cannot, cannot allow it to go on and continue. There is only one God. And so claims to be God and to be the Christ are especially judged. The certainty also is that God has sent His Christ. All this blasphemy isn't simply against God or His church. It's against His Christ. God is the Savior. How is God going to save mankind? Not the way of men, but in the way of sin and grace. That's why it's judged. The great words are against Christ Himself. All of that should be great comfort to us. It's one or the other. The Christ or the Antichrist. Salvation by man that leaves us in our sin and ultimately is what brings the demise of the kingdom. The blasphemies grow until the Christ returns or that Christ. But even more than that, did you notice the emphasis upon what happens to the people of His kingdom? It's quite amazing. Amazing especially because Christ knew this passage and quoted it. Look at the people. Did you notice something about the beasts? He doesn't really talk about the people. He just talks about the king. He's ruling over people. But what does he think of people? Well, he uses people. Satan uses people. His minions are going to use people. His antichrist is going to use people to accomplish his purpose. Not our Christ. He does the exact opposite. Notice that. First of all, there's emphasis upon Christ as the Son of Man. Not the Son of God, which is what you would expect, but the Son of Man. That is, He's one distinctly different from the Ancient of Days. He is God in man's flesh, in our flesh. The difference, of course, is He's man not as He arises out of the earth, but as He comes down from heaven. The only man worthy of being God's King and God's Christ because he was a faithful, obedient servant of God who loved him in all things, even to the death. And we read he's given dominion and glory in a kingdom that consists of all peoples, nations, and languages. What is that? That's the church. And we read, it shall never pass away. It's not able to be destroyed. doesn't matter what it looks like. It never passes away. It shall never be destroyed. That, in comparison to the kingdom of the beast, which is a time, times, and a half a time, it has an ending, an abrupt ending. The times of the kingdom of Christ and His church is eternal. And even more striking is that the saints we read themselves receive the victory. Today, people in the church say this, this is defeatism. This is just negativism, pessimism. There's no victory in this. There's, all, there's victory here. Notice we read, they, they shall take the kingdom and possess it forever. Not because they have some power in themselves, but because Christ takes it and gives it to them. We read it again in verse 27. To be given to the people of the saints of the Most High God. Why is it given to them? Because they're the saints of the Most High. They belong to Him. He is the one who has sanctified. He is the one who has redeemed them. 
And they're faithful to Him even unto death. That's why. And there is what Daniel saw. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter what king I confront. It doesn't matter if I'm going to get thrown in a lion's den, which is about ready to happen. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that we're sitting here in Babylon and we're going to come back to a Jerusalem that's broken down, belong to a kingdom whose king knows no end, whose king is going to destroy these beasts. And that's the message of Daniel 7. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, our God and Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word, the Word of Thy Holy Gospel, the Word concerning our Lord Jesus Christ and His great kingdom, and how He establishes that kingdom. And We pray for faith to trust and believe in Him and His Word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.